What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. Today, I'm joined in the studio by my new producer, Annabelle. If you haven't heard of Annabelle before, she doesn't talk a lot, but she will move from time to time. I'm very excited for today's episode because I'm going to be diving into some of the most haunted places in London, England. Shout out to all of you UK listeners and viewers out there. Thank you so much for supporting the Lights Out podcast. Because of you, we have been ranked in the top five in true crime podcasts on Spotify for probably a month now. So thank you so much. And as my gift to you, this episode and next episode are coming straight out of the UK, which I'm very excited about because there's actually a lot of haunted history there. We're going to dive into that here in just a second, but first off, if you're not watching, go and watch the podcast this week, either on Spotify or YouTube, because I am back in my lair. The Lights Out Studio is alive and well again. I just can't tell you how much more I like to podcast in here because just the vibes are just totally different. It really does feel haunted in here. I know that sounds really stupid, but... It really does. Like, there's just something about the air in here. I've got incense burning. I've got the candles. I've just got the whole vibe back. And this studio is what makes Lights Out such a great show. But let's just say overall, I'm feeling better than ever. Plus, it's October, which means we're counting down the days until the official holiday of Lights Out Podcast. And that is none other than Halloween love Halloween each year. So in the spirit of Halloween, I've got Annabelle joining me for the next couple of episodes. I'm going to have a very, very creepy and interesting episode for you come the week of Halloween and maybe even a bonus episode. We shall see. But this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Hunt a Killer and HelloFresh. Let's just go ahead and dive right in to the most haunted places of London. And we're going to begin by talking about one of the most iconic places in the city. It's also one of the most haunted. And its history is rooted in violence and horror that has trapped a handful of spirits inside of its walls. The Tower of London was built by William of Normandy when he set out to conquer England in the 11th century almost a thousand years ago. It sits on the north bank of the River Thames in central London, and it's named after its highest tower. The castle was built so William could establish his authority in the region after conquering it. To do this, he shipped tons of stone from France while the Anglo-Saxons built the walls piece by piece. It took nearly 20 years to complete. When it was finally finished, it stood nearly 89 feet tall and its walls were nearly 15 feet thick. This massive castle was designed to intimidate the nearby Londoners. If they ever thought about revolting against William, they saw the strong defenses they were up against. Meanwhile, the second and third floors of the castle were reserved for royalty and nobles. The first floor was used by the staff and the cellars stored tons of food and wine. 
But years later, the cellar wouldn't be just a simple storage area. It would slowly become a place where guards stretched prisoners' limbs and shattered their bones. It'd be a place where no one could hear the screams of the tortured souls that rarely saw the sun. Even though it was first designed to be a palace and not a prison, it would later be known for the gruesome cages where they locked away enemies of the state. And most of the ghosts that reside within its walls are the sad unfortunate souls who met death far too early, many of them dying without justice. But one of the most famous ghosts that wandered the tower is Anne Bolin. She was the second wife of King Henry VIII. Henry was the King of England from 1509 until his death in 1547, and he's best known for his six marriages to six different women during his reign. As king, he had several affairs and was known for treating his wives like shit. When he tried to annul his first marriage to the Queen Catherine, the Pope refused. So Henry began the English Reformation and separated the Church of England from the Pope's power in the Catholic Church. He then declared himself the supreme head of the Church, and the Pope quickly excommunicated him. He banished Catherine from his court, and he divorced her as soon as he had the religious power to destroy their marriage of 24 years. During their marriage, he had an affair with his wife's assistant, Mary Bolin. And during the affair, he fell in love with Mary's sister, Anne. So after banishing and divorcing his first wife, he ended up marrying Anne Bolin. At first, she resisted Henry's attempts to seduce her. She didn't want to become another mistress like her sister Mary. But after Henry's marriage was over, she formally married him on January 25th, 1533. She became pregnant soon after and gave birth to their first daughter on September 7th. Henry wanted a son to have a rightful heir to the throne, and this would later become a huge problem in their marriage. To no one's surprise, neither of them enjoyed married life. They had an occasional moment of affection, but Anne often refused to play the submissive role that Henry wanted her to. She had a lot of opinions, and she was intelligent, but she also had a violent temper. She made plenty of enemies in the royal circle, and Henry disliked her political outbursts. After a miscarriage in 1534, Henry saw this as another failure to give him a son. He also saw this as a betrayal. He then started another affair during their marriage and spoke with his closest court members about his plan to eventually leave Anne. Meanwhile, Henry was executing monks for not accepting him as the supreme head of the church, and he wasn't afraid to convict more of his men if they were against him. Over time, he executed about 200 rebels during his reign. If they didn't accept him, he would kill anyone who disagreed. Henry's violent nature became obvious to Anne, and she knew if she didn't give birth to a son quickly, her fate may be the same as the rebels. By 1536, she was pregnant again. She prayed that it was a boy so Henry wouldn't turn against her, and her prayers came true, but not in the way she thought they would. By the end of January, Henry had an accident and fell off his horse in a tournament. He was badly injured, and many thought he was going to die from his injuries. When the news reached Anne, she went into shock. From all the stress, she miscarried a male child at 15 weeks. And when news spread about her miscarriage, many thought this was the beginning of the end. And they were right. 
Henry first looked for another annulment, but since Anne had built up several political enemies along the way, these enemies convinced the king to punish her even more. An annulment wasn't enough. As she recovered from her miscarriage, allegations of conspiracy, adultery, incest, and even witchcraft spread through London. Five men, including Anne's brother George, were arrested and charged with adultery. As they were accused of having an affair with Anne, one of the men was tortured down in the cellars and he admitted to having an affair with the queen, but by that point he would have said anything to stop the torture. Even though there was almost no evidence to support the affairs, all the men were eventually convicted and executed. Meanwhile, Henry's new mistress was moved into the royal quarters, and at this point, Anne knew it was the end. On May 2nd, 1536, Anne was arrested and taken to the Tower of London. After spending several days in prison, she wrote a letter to Henry. In the note, she swore her loyalty to him and didn't understand why he had imprisoned her, but she would never change his mind. Anne went to trial on May 15th, 1536. There, she was accused of adultery, incest, and high treason. They claimed she had an affair with many men, including her brother. And they also accused her of conspiring against the king with these men. The jury of 27 men unanimously found her guilty, and they condemned her to death. As she waited in the tower for execution, many reported that she seemed happy and ready to be done with life. She was initially sentenced to be burned alive, but Henry changed her execution to beheading. He even brought in an expert swordsman from France to perform the execution. In her final moments, she had mass with the constable of the tower, William Kingston. She swore on the eternal salvation of her soul that she had never been unfaithful to the king. But unfortunately, at this point, her fate had been sealed by the king. Even if she was innocent, she wouldn't provide him a male heir to the throne. So in Henry's eyes, she was useless. On the morning of May 19th, they took her to a scaffold out on the north side of the White Tower. She wore a red coat and a gray gown that was trimmed in fur. Even in her last moments, she still looked like a queen. A few other ladies walked beside her, and she made her final walk across the yard toward the scaffold. In her final words, she prayed, God save the king, during a short speech. She also hoped that the Lord would have mercy on her, and she commended her soul to God. She then lifted off her headdress and tucked her hair into a fitting cap. She said goodbye to the ladies with her, and she knelt down as one of them tied a blindfold over her eyes. Then the executioner approached. As Anne knelt on the ground, she repeated a prayer over and over again. Jesus, receive my soul. O oh Lord, God have pity on my soul. And with one single stroke, the executioner cut her head clean off. As her body slumped to the ground and many in the audience began to cry, one of them said that she will now become a queen in heaven. But others believe that her spirit never fully left the world of the living. Her tortured soul has been trapped here for centuries, and she's now the most famous ghost in the Tower of London. She's often seen in the Tower Greens, the lawn where she was executed. She also wanders the corridors, and she's often missing her head. Many see her dressed in the red coat she had worn on her execution day, and occasionally, she's been spotted inside the former parish church of the Tower of London. Years later, late one night, 
The captain of the guard saw a light flickering inside the locked chapel. Curious. He tried to figure out where the light was coming from, so he climbed up a ladder to get a better look through the windows. And as he looked inside, he saw an unbelievable scene unfolding. A procession of knights and ladies dressed in ancient clothing walked around the chapel, and their leader looked like an elegant woman. He couldn't see her face, but she looked like the figure of Anne that he had once seen in a portrait. Within a moment, all the figures turned and stared directly at him, and then they disappeared. On another occasion in 1864, an on-duty soldier near the lieutenant's lodgings caught another sight of Anne Bolin's ghost. He confronted a female figure all in white, but she didn't respond. She just stood there looking at him. He figured it was an intruder, so he took his bayonet and plunged it into her chest. But the weapon passed right through her. Another officer that was lodged in a nearby tower saw the whole thing from his window. Soon after, the apparition disappeared, and nobody knows for sure what Anne wants, or what she's still doing in the realm between the living and the dead. But her ghost isn't restricted to the tower. She's also been spotted in her childhood home at Hever Castle, and several other courts and halls where she had traveled when she was alive. She's often seen without a head, but people can identify her by her elegant clothing. Some believe it's not her ghost at all. From her last moments before death, she seemed to be at peace, so many think that these visions are just impressions left behind, and her soul has indeed moved on to the afterlife. But whatever it is, her form still haunts the people inside the Tower of London. Lucky for her. She isn't alone, and she wasn't the only person to be executed under Henry VIII's rule. Margaret Pole was the Countess of Salisbury. She served underneath Henry's first wife, Catherine. She managed her lands well, but things began falling apart during Henry's marriage to Anne Boleyn. Margaret's third son, Reginald, became a cardinal under Pope Paul III and he was put in charge of organizing a march on London to install a conservative Catholic government. This was a great threat to King Henry, and the English government tried to have him assassinated. Her youngest son, Joffrey, was later arrested for his involvement in a conspiracy to overthrow Henry VIII. After his arrest, he sold out other members of the conspiracy. Margaret was accused of supporting the Church of Rome in her son's attempt at installing a Catholic government. She was quickly sentenced to death and the king could decide to execute her whenever he wanted. She ended up being imprisoned in the Tower of London for two and a half years, but her imprisonment was much easier than the other prison sentences. She was attended by servants, and she even received a ton of elegant clothing during her stay. A poem was later found carved on the wall of her cell, and it read as follows, For traitors on the block should die. I am no traitor. No, not I. My faithfulness stands fast, and so towards the block I shall not go, nor make one step as you shall see. Christ in thy mercy save thou me. On the morning of May 27, 1541, Margaret was suddenly told she would die within the hour. The king wanted to make an example of her. The guards took her down to the tower green where a low wooden block had been prepared. Margaret said that she didn't know what crime she was accused of, and she didn't even know how she had been sentenced. To make matters worse, the main executioner had been sent north to deal with rebels, so the new executioner was a young man who had never executed anyone before. Margaret would be his first. 
When she was led to the green, Margaret refused to lay her head on the wooden block. She said that only traitors would lay their head on the block, and she wasn't one. She then told the executioner that if he wanted her head, he would have to take it from her. As the executioner raised his axe, Margaret jumped up and ran away from the block. The executioner chased her across the green, hacking away at her. Slowly, she fell to the ground, covered in blood, as the executioner kept swinging his axe. Deep wounds covered her body, and she eventually bled out and died. Her body sprawled out on the lawn, and a trail of blood snaked behind her. All the witnesses looked on in horror, as they had never seen an execution quite like this. After they carried her body away, she was buried inside the chapel, and to this day, her ghostly screams can be heard on the tower green, and some claim they have seen the reenactment of her gruesome death. Over and over she relives the trauma of her violent execution, and her spirit is just one more added to the list. Of all the prisoners executed inside the Tower of London, many spirits still remain. The ones that were famous in history can be identified, but many of the ghosts are just nameless souls. Over 20 people were executed on the Tower Green, and a hundred more were executed just outside the walls at Tower Hill. Those who weren't executed starved to death in their prison cells, or were murdered by political enemies. Most of their crimes involved treason, which was a great excuse for the king to put people to death. Perhaps one of the most famous people ever held inside the tower was Guy Fawkes. You might know him for his mask that was made famous by the internet hacktivist group Anonymous. But back in the early 1600s, he was known for the failed gunpowder plot to blow up a handful of political enemies. The gunpowder plot was a failed assassination attempt against King James I. They rebelled to restore Catholic monarchy to the throne, so the plan was to blow up the entire House of Lords during the state opening of Parliament on November 5th, 1605. This was also when King James' nine-year-old daughter Elizabeth was about to be installed as the Catholic head of state. Guy Fawkes had 10 years of military experience while fighting in the Spanish Netherlands, so he was in charge of the explosives. But before they could carry out their plan, an anonymous letter was sent to one of the members of the House of Lords, so they ordered guards to search the area on the day before November 5th. They caught Guy Fawkes guarding 36 barrels of gunpowder. This was enough explosives to turn the entire House of Lords into dust. The guards arrested Guy Fawkes, but most of the other conspirators fled once they heard the plot had been discovered. After his arrest, they questioned and tortured him over the next few days until he finally confessed that he was planning to blow up the House of Lords. He was convicted and sentenced to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. Then they would remove his genitals, tear out his bowels, cut off his head, and rip him into four pieces. After all of that, they would then take the body parts and place them on the London Bridge for everyone to see. Even though his body would be unrecognizable, it would send a message to anyone who tried to rebel against the government. After seeing this was going to be his fate, Guy Fox had other plans. Right before his execution on January 31st, 1606, the guards led him out to the scaffold where he was going to be hanged. But before they could attach the rope to his neck, he jumped off the platform head first. His head hit the ground and his neck snapped under the weight of his body and he died instantly. Luckily for him, he avoided the very gruesome death 
of being hang-drawn and quartered. He's now celebrated every November 5th. And people burn his effigies over bonfires and shoot off fireworks to remember him by. But that's not all that was left over. Many claim that late at night you can hear screams of terror from the rooms where he was tortured and prepared for his execution. Those that have heard his screams say that they're so harsh that they could be coming from someone going through mind, shattering pain. His screams won't let anyone forget the horrific torture methods used in the Tower of London for years. They often set people on wooden racks and stretch their bodies until their limbs would dislocate and rip from their sockets. Even his blood-curdling screams can't really explain how much pain these prisoners were truly put through. But the many ghosts of the Tower of London won't let us forget the inhumane things the royals carried out. Talk about a brutal time to be alive. Can't even imagine how horrible it must have been to be a prisoner inside the Tower of London during this time period. Sounds like literal hell. Not to mention the brutal ways that they executed people back then. And what's interesting is that the hauntings seem to follow the royal family all around London. And since their history dates back centuries, they're known for their achievements and horrors. And these horrors involve a handful of spirits that continue to haunt the old royal architecture around London. One of these places is the Queen's House out in Royal Borough of Greenwich. It's a former royal residence built between 1616 and 1635 near Greenwich Palace. It's a beautiful two-story building that has a grand vista leading down to the River Thames, and it's the first classical building constructed in the country. Despite its beauty, it's also the site of one of Britain's most famous ghost photographs. As time passed, the house was no longer used as a residence, but it survived as an official building. The palace nearby was demolished and replaced by the Royal Hospital for Seamen in 1751. The building was then used as the old Royal Naval College beginning in 1873, and the house remained as its own building, and the rest of the compound was built around it down near the river. In 1966, a retired Canadian reverend named Hardy and his wife visited the Queen's house, as they were interested in seeing its beautiful architecture and decorations. While there, they made sure to get a good look at the famous tulip staircase. This spiral staircase is one of the original features of the home. Built from iron, this was the first geometric self-supporting spiral staircase in all of Britain. And late at night, the staircase was dimly lit by the lights on the walls. The reverend snapped a picture to try and capture it as beauty, but later he found out he had captured something else. Once he got home, he developed the photo and saw an image of a shrouded figure on the staircase. The figure appears to be descending the staircase with one hand on the railing. There might be a second and third figures as well, but their figures are see-through, so it's hard to tell. What's interesting is that the reverend and his wife were the only two people in the house and they were certain that the staircase was clear when they took the photo. There is no explanation for what or who is in the photograph, but if you look at it, it looks like a hand on the railing and a spectral figure heading up the steps. As the news spread of the ghost in the photograph, seven members of the paranormal investigation team called Ghost Club decided to spend a night in the Queen's house. And on Saturday, June 24th, 1967, their plan was to capture a ghost on film record them speaking or make contact with them by holding a seance. They all wore soft-soled shoes and synchronized their watches and carried a torch, notebook, and pencil at all times. Everything had to be written down, including any odd noises or strange smells. 
But unfortunately, that night, they didn't uncover anything. But the story of the ghost wasn't over. Many years later, in 2002, one of the gallery assistants inside the Queen's house was talking with two of his colleagues when suddenly, out of the corner of his eye, a strange figure gliding across the balcony became apparent. The apparition was dressed in an old-fashioned white-gray dress, and it floated across the balcony and then quietly passed through a solid wall. No one knows if this was the same ghost that the Reverend and his wife had seen all those years ago, but clearly, some sort of haunting energy has manifested inside the Queen's house, and who knows how much horrific history has gone undocumented over the last 400 years. And this house isn't the only haunted location in Greenwich. Not far from the Queen's house, many Londoners know of the Greenwich Foot Tunnel. It's less than a half mile walk toward the River Thames. Construction on the tunnel began in 1899 and was completed in 1902. It was built to replace the ferry system that shipped people across the river. At first, people were excited to walk underneath the river, but after a hundred years of use, it's now become an eerie tunnel to walk through. In order to get to the tunnel, you have to walk down a hundred steps at the south entrance or take a dimly lit elevator downwards. It's open 24 hours a day, and many who have walked it during the night claim that the dead roam within. It's a long hallway in the shape of a tube. It's also cold and damp, and a series of lights barely shine strong enough to light up the path. Cracked tiles fall from the walls and dripping water seeps from the ceiling. In some areas, stalactites form on the ceiling from the constant drip of water. Along with the water droplets hitting the cement floor, the echoes of other footsteps and whispering voices carry along the 1,200-foot walkway. And many have heard disembodied voices and footsteps fill the air as they cross beneath the river. Others have experienced severe temperature drops. Many also get the feeling that someone or something is watching them, and some have even seen apparitions walking beside them or following them close behind. Luckily, the ghosts are harmless. It's mostly the living people you have to be worried about. The most common story down in the Greenwich Tunnel involves a ghostly couple. Many who have passed through this dark tunnel have come across two faint apparitions dressed in Victorian garbs. A male and a female are often seen holding hands. They appear for a moment as they stroll through the tunnel before disappearing into thin air. No one knows who this couple is or what their backstory holds. Their history remains a mystery, just like many of the ghosts that call London home. The next haunted location we're going to dive into after a quick ad break is the Hellfire Club. Stick around, and I'll be right back. Some history of London has only been passed down through rumors and word of mouth. Records have been lost or destroyed on purpose to cover up a haunted past. And for one group of aristocrats, all that remains are underground secret chambers from a lost, demonic cult. The dark truth of London's rich and powerful hides in the shadows. The city of London has drawn all sorts of people to its dark chambers where devil worshippers gathered. And the city has kept up its gloomy charm through the centuries. Back in the 17th century, 80% of London burned to the ground in a great fire. Some believe this was judgment sent by God. And many pointed out that the year was 1666. Can you believe that? Many thought that the Antichrist had finally been unleashed and this was the end of days. But the ruling class didn't worry. 
If anything, they celebrated the Antichrist in secret. Rumors spread that the people in power attended drunken orgies and praised Satan behind locked doors, and some of their meeting places were deep underground. Many of London's noblemen were members of secret societies. Most of the time they threw wild parties and the only way to enter was a secret password. But when they got bored of the drunken orgies, some of them looked for something darker, as the thrill of sex and booze wasn't enough. The only way to do their bidding in secret was to go underground out of eyesight, so they built their headquarters out in the town of West Wickham, 36 miles from London, and they called it the Hellfire Club. They were known to participate in sacrilegious orgies and possibly black magic rituals. Out on a ridge surrounded by fields and forests, St. Francis Dashwood built a church. Francis was an English politician and a senior minister of the crown. He was also the man who dug out the caves for the Hellfire Club. 300 feet below the church. The church was even named after St. Lawrence, the patron saint of prostitutes, and from the outside the church looks simple. It's built out of stone and looks like any other church, but at the peak of the church a giant golden ball sits. This was a room where Hellfire Club members would gamble and play cards, and when they were done with cards they headed down to the subterranean level deep below the church's foundation. Francis and the club members would head down a long sloping tunnel, each tunnel was dug out with shovels and pickaxes. They were originally in the tunnels of a chalk mine in 1749. Francis had hired farmers who suffered a bad harvest to get some work. And after a few years of mining, he changed the mine into a secret lair. A half-mile tunnel leads to bigger rooms like a 1,200-square-foot banquet hall, and the tunnels eventually dead end in a pool of water. But this isn't a true dead end. It was made to look like the end of the tunnel. But in the 1700s, a boatman would ferry club members across the water to the entrance of the secret inner temple. They needed to keep it as hidden as possible since many of the members were high-ranking politicians. Sir Francis was a member of Parliament and a good friend of none other than Benjamin Franklin. Other members of Parliament, aristocrats, and the judges were all friends of Francis. And many joined him at the Hellfire Club meetings. Francis appointed himself the first abbot of the club, and the other 12 founding members were his apostles. Down in these chambers they drank, gambled, and brought in prostitutes that they called the nuns. Supposedly, mass members would offer their bodies as altars while the club performed satanic rituals. Many believed that they were trying to raise the devil. They built many of the rooms to look like the secret lairs were descending into hell. And each member did all of this full well knowing that if the public found out about them, they would certainly lose their careers. No records of the club have been left behind. They were all burned after the last meeting in 1774. Many of the members have only been traced by letters sent to each other, and rumors say that some of their spirits have been trapped inside of the tunnels. Their dance with the devil trapped them in the tunnels descending into hell. Hissing noises can be heard down long hallways, and some believe the entrance of hell itself is connected somewhere in this long maze of tunnels known as the Hellfire Club. If these tunnels aren't the gateway to hell, there's another place in London that might have a deeper connection to the afterlife. It's called Highgate Cemetery. 
and many say it's one of the most haunted places in London for good reason. By the early 1800s, the city's population had topped 1 million. London had an extremely high death rate, but it was still growing by the day. So many people were dying that they had to cram gravesites in between shops and outside of taverns. Headstones lined alleyways, and they quickly ran out of places to bury people. Undertakers disguised themselves as clergymen so that they could perform illegal ceremonies outside, and many of the dead were buried in shallow graves, and they covered the bodies with a bit of lime juice before shoveling a few inches of dirt over them. As you can imagine, the smells in the streets are horrific, and disease spread like wildfire. To try and put an end to the madness, Parliament stepped in and decided that seven cemeteries would be built in the countryside around London. They were later known as the Magnificent Seven. The third cemetery that was built in 1839 was named Highgate, and the architect behind the job made sure to turn this area into a place of peace and serenity. Soon enough, everyone wanted to be buried in Highgate Cemetery, but in less than 20 years, the place was fully packed with corpses. So Parliament bought another 20 acres to add to the cemetery. Headstones and tombs filled the land. It became one of the most famous cemeteries around. But by the turn of the century, the cemetery began to fall apart. By World War I, the staff couldn't maintain the cemetery. And by the end of World War II, the cemetery had been mostly abandoned. In 1960, the cemetery gates were closed and the peaceful landscapes returned to nature. Vines and shrubbery took over the headstones and mausoleums and trees grew between the graves. It became a perfect place to shoot a horror movie, which many studios ended up doing. And this is when the true horror stories began. People claimed they saw men dressed in dark robes wandering through the cemetery at night. They would gather and perform dark rituals. And just outside of the cemetery walls, phantoms and ghouls haunted the alleyways. There was even reports of red-eyed demons beginning to surface. These dark creatures would stand at the cemetery's edge and peer through the fence as people walked by. Then rumors of a Highgate vampire began to surface. He's said to be a medieval nobleman who practiced black magic in Romania. His coffin was transported to London in the 18th century and his cult followers bought a house in the West End so they could worship him. His body was buried in the ground that would later become the Highgate Cemetery and he rested there for many years until the men in dark robes performed their rituals, which eventually awoke him up from his long slumber. And now the vampire uses the cemetery as a hunting ground at night. According to those who've seen him, he tends to be a tall, dark figure. And you can sense when he's nearby because the temperature drops to below freezing. Sometimes his presence causes clocks and watches to stop. The small critters in the cemetery, like squirrels and the rabbits, run for cover whenever he's nearby as he enjoys drinking their blood and leaving their corpses laying around the cemetery. And he's also blamed for the death of several foxes on the cemetery grounds. Puncture wounds can be found in their necks, which look like two sharp fangs made these wounds. But he doesn't only go after animals. It's said that whoever is foolish enough to spend a night in the cemetery will most likely come across him, and if they ever look into his eyes, they'll be trapped into a hypnotic state. A chill will run through their bones and into their spine, stopping them in their tracks. And after that one night, they'll never be seen again. In the 1970s, a local magician named Sean Manchester decided to investigate the cemetery for himself, as he thought the legend of the vampire in the cemetery was a bit stupid. 
Why would something that needs blood from a living thing hang out in a cemetery, you ask? On the first and only night of his investigation, he disappeared and was actually never seen again. So maybe Sean was right after all. It might not make sense for a vampire to hang out with a bunch of dead bloodless corpses, but he only has to wait for a fresh meal to stay in the cemetery overnight to get his fill. Other supernatural phenomenon besides the vampire has also been reported throughout the cemetery. During the Victorian era, many of the bodies were buried above ground inside stone tombs. Occasionally a loud blast can be heard through the cemetery. And cemetery staff would find tombs blown to bits. At first, some thought the spirits were escaping the bodies in a burst of energy, but they finally realized the true problem. At the time, regulations required that the tombs were encased in lead to stop miasma from leaking out. And since those tombs were sealed so tightly, gas from the decomposing bodies built up inside. And when the pressure built up, a handful of coffins exploded, sending lead and stone through the cemetery. So the staff began drilling small holes inside of the tombs and placing pipes inside them. They would then light a match at the end of the pipe so the gases would burn off. They don't do this anymore, but the cemetery has gotten new problems since then. Instead of explosions, now people hear banshee wails in the dead of night. Others have seen spectral faces floating above headstones and several other ghosts wandering around. Today, there are nearly 170,000 people buried at Highgate Cemetery, and one of the graves includes the remains of Karl Marx, another as George Michael. But some of the most famous people in the cemetery are the ones that are now spirits forever haunting the grounds. So if you ever want to test your luck, spend a night in the Highgate Cemetery. Who knows? You might just end up as a bloodless sack of skin and bones. This is just beginning to scratch the surface of the countless hauntings and haunted places that London has contained for centuries. For every era, there's a ghost. The city has such a long, rich history of death, violence, and mystery. It's no wonder the ghosts and ghouls have stories that reach back to the earliest days. These apparitions remind us of the true nightmares that hide within the city. From bloodthirsty men of power to dark secret societies run by the elite class, the ghosts and ghouls of London show us that the present isn't that much different from the past. Oh, got chills running up and down my spine. I don't know about you. So many dark and haunted places in London. I could have probably done a four-hour episode on the top ten. But this is just part one. I'm sure many of you UK listeners out there are going to be sending me messages and comments. Be like, what about this place? What about that place? Have you heard of this haunting? Send it my way. Maybe I'll make a series out of it. Actually, I do have a series. Haunted Places. So, hey, maybe there's a Haunted Places London Part 2. Let me know which haunted place you found. Most terrifying. I know for me, it's definitely the Tower of London just from the sheer dark history and all of the torture that took place in that structure. When I visited London, I think it was, what, two years ago, I didn't actually get to go into the Tower of London, which I'm kicking myself. I didn't have that much time, but I know there was a ghost tour. I know there was all that good stuff, and I didn't get to go, but I drove past it, and I saw it, which was cool, but I got to go back and do a tour and go through the tunnels 
and immerse myself in that environment. I did go to the Jack Ripper Museum, go to Whitechapel, and just immersing myself in that man's life definitely sent chills to my very core. I think with just so much history that London has with all the royal families and all the things that they did, it's no wonder that there's so many haunted places and just hauntings in general. But let me know your thoughts in the comments below if you're watching on YouTube. If you're watching on Spotify or listening on Apple Podcasts, you can always send me a message, Twitter, Instagram. I also have a suggestion form for future episodes. Or come say hi on TikTok at Lights Out Cast. Join us. Would love to have you following the show. But that is it for me today. Annabelle, do you have anything you want to add? I haven't, uh, haven't heard too much from Annabelle this episode. Got anything? I don't know if you saw her moving at all. Hopefully not. But I swear this room is, there's definitely something here. Because again, if you remember the previous Lights Out studio, we had many uh, weird things happening in there. And some of the objects that I had over there, I've brought over here. And it's funny. No one else in the building wants to come in this room but me. So let me know if you saw anything weird. I've seen orbs in past episodes. I'm curious if during this episode anything happened. But thanks again for joining me for another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'll see you next time. And until then, lights out, everybody. <laughs>